This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Matt Haupt, thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market. Really appreciate your time. I thought we could start by introducing WAM leaders and uh, and maybe Wilson Asset Management more broadly and uh, what the company does and what you specialise in there. Yes, WAM Leaders um, is an ASX 200 focused listed investment company. So we have a bottom-up approach with a macro overlay. So we we use a combination of the two techniques um, uh, to position our portfolio. Um, Wilson Asset Management has been around for a long time now, over 20 years, um, and we run listed investment companies. So we've got ranging from micro caps to the mid-small caps, to, to what I run is the large caps, and then we've got the global fund and a recent addition, the alternative assets fund. So got a, got a wide mix at the moment. And you're, you're renowned in the industry for your, your thoughts on macroeconomics and considering that's what I spend most of my time thinking about, I really wanted to, to dive deep into that and, and some of the big macro issues facing the world. And I thought a good place to start would be um, US interest rates and, and bond yields uh, more broadly. Can you see a future or foreseeable future where US bond yields increase? Yeah, I can, Chris. It's an interesting topic. Um, I guess we'll check in. The first point to check in is around Jackson Hole. So clear messaging for the first time from the Fed about their position on nominal rates. Basically, Powell said the damage done by lowering the nominal rates further from here uh, has profound consequences. So for me, that was a line in the sand that nominals won't change unless you get a severe shock. What will change is real interest rates. Mm. Obviously, they want to let inflation run. But the, the Fed tools, they can't really promote inflation. The, what they can do is have a commentary policy, but it's really fiscal which needs to run in the background to get inflation. But I guess the key thing is inflation does come through fiscal. The Fed won't be moving that short-end rate. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, that's key. So the trade at the short end has been the long-duration equity uh, tech plays. So I think that will still remain the case. But I think the, 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 the long end is where you're going to see the action because the, the short end is nailed down. Uh, they're not going to move it. You won't get a big uh, rise in the short end, but the long end is where all the action will be. And that has some big consequences for different um, sectors in the economy. So for them to say to, to they want to drop the nominal yield even further is almost really saying they're going to go negative, isn't it? Because yeah. there's, no, there's nowhere really else for it to go from here. Yeah, correct. And I think the, the key thing I took out from Jackson Hole's speech was he was saying the damage done by lowering the nominal further far outweighs the benefits. So that was a clear line in the sand that the nominal will not move unless there's a severe shock or some other um, unforeseen circumstances. So that was a clear line in the sand. The damage done will be greater than the benefit. And so he also said during that time, uh, Chairman Powell, that he wasn't going to introduce yield curve control. Um, and there's no real need to introduce yield curve control in the States because there's no inflation. What he did say is they were going to let inflation run above their previous 
2% target for an extended period due to the deflationary environment we've had. You mentioned that he can't create inflation, um, but he has done some things differently to what Bernanke did post-GFC, certainly buying um, corporate debt is something that some believe um, wasn't even legal and certainly something Bernanke didn't venture into. Do you think that's important to create inflation and, and do you differentiate that from just buying government bonds? Yeah, I think inflation really will get down to business activity and closing the output gap. So I think at the moment there's a huge output gap uh, with the economy. So we're nowhere near where we need to be for inflation to come through. So we need that output gap to close. What I think will be key for inflation is once we get the fractional banking system going, because at the moment, loan growth and the velocity of money is yeah. really high. So once the fractional banking system kicks in, all those excess reserves, that's when you'll start seeing increased uh, credit growth and lending, and then you'll get the uh, inflation coming through once we get um, that fractional banking system lending money. We've seen him, uh, Chairman Power, really encourage um, fiscal spending. He's basically said we've almost done as much as we can in terms of stimulating this economy. People say we don't have MMT yet. There's not sort of an explicit guarantee um, given by the Federal Reserve to the Treasury. You spend as much as you want and we'll cover the deficits in perpetuity. How far away are we from having a, a more official type MMT introduced where all of a sudden deficits seemingly don't matter? Yeah, I think we're very close. Um, it's really going to get over the next uh, three to six months, the direction we take if the economy doesn't get back to normality or close to it. We'll really have to see some, like the fiscal um, impulse that's needed to cre create the economy or get it going. Um, it's a huge amount of money that needs to be put in place. So if that keeps going in that direction, then the Fed will have to monetize that debt because there's just no way you could be running deficits like that. The, um, the flow-on effects are huge and it's just not tenable. So the, the Fed will have to step in and start to monetize that, which I don't think is uh, that big a deal um, to get through this or navigate through this period. But yeah, it's definitely on the cards in the next three to six months if the economy cannot get back to some level of normality. The thing that makes me nervous is you've got US elections coming up. Um, maybe not nervous is the right word. I think if you get Democrats control both the House and the Senate, I think the fiscal stimulus is going to be huge. You know, there'll be trillions of dollars worth of uh, new green projects and they've already announced some of their plans. If Trump, if the Republicans control both, I think the spending will be huge. If Trump wins and the Democrats control the Senate, again, I think the spending will be astronomical. The, the only combo where I think you could get a level of fiscal austerity is if Biden were to win, but the Republicans control the Senate, which is really what we saw in the Obama years and you know, the Tea Party movement. Is that something you're watching and, and could that change how you're viewing the potential reflation environment in the US and around the world? Yeah, 100%. You're right there, Chris. Like you, you look at what happened um, during the Obama period, like any time there was, a, you know, the, the fiscal uh, cliff would come up or the, the deficit rollover of debt. Um, there was always a fight to the death, you know, that extended and then the last minute get a deal across. And just every move they made was um, stopped right at the death and the, the stimulus, the infrastructure, they had the infrastructure plans which were 
knocked back repeatedly. So that would be the worst case scenario. Um, it's quite interesting going into the federal election um, now. You look at the um, well, the U.S. election. You look at the uh, uh, volatility curves going up there. You think like this market's starting to get a bit shaky now, um, but the vol uh, going into the election, it just feels like um, yeah, some of these scenarios have started to be played out in people's uh, opinions on how we go. But definitely, the, the the scenario you painted there would be the worst case scenario. Um, obviously, the reflation trade would be great around the Democrats because they are big spenders. So um, for us, we'd be very uh, well positioned if that would happen. But I think Republicans uh, will come to the party eventually. Um, I mean, this, the biggest concern I have right at the moment is the short term getting the CARES package through. Uh, it's just dragged on forever. And I think if we can get that through, it really buys us some time. So um, it will take some of that vol out going into the election as well. So hopefully we can get a CARES package through in the in the short term to fix some of that uh, those uh, issues going into the election because if we don't get that sorted, you got the vol, it's just going to run out of steam and then some of these scenarios you're painting now uh, will, will be factored into some of the bear cases. And I mean, that'd be... Um, horrendous for the uh, reflation trade and then you'd have to start thinking do you go back to these tech long duration plays because rates won't be moving for uh, it could be like five seven years you just don't know like so that would be the worst case so let's say we get one of those three combinations in the u.s election where we feel inflation is going to come due to the enormous fiscal spending combined with really loose monetary policy u.s can't afford higher rates due to the amount of debt the government has, do you think they introduce yield curve control once that happens over there in the US if inflation is such that it, bond yields should be increasing? Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, the in the belly of the yield curve at the moment, there's no need for yield curve control oh. if rates are obviously not moving. Uh, people's expectations are for rates to not move for three to five years, basically. So there is no use for yield curve control but it's definitely something they've tabled and it's quite interesting to see like if we start to get some of the yield curve like we're going to at least get to see the appetite of the fed on how far they'll let the yield curve go if it does go up so that'll be a real testing point because if they start introducing yield curve control i mean again we've seen it in australia just destroys the financial sector so mm -hmm. the financial sector is already pretty wrecked in the us as well massive underperformer but yield curve control on top of that is just another uh, negative headwind so from what i've gathered from all the fed speakers is yield curve control not on the table at the moment but there is no need for it so it's a it's a, a, a it's a silly discussion it's not needed but yeah once the yield curve does start moving yeah, that first um, sign of them interfering will be a key key way to position your portfolio because it dictates so many things. And if it does come in, do you effectively lose the US bond market as, a, as an asset if you lose that element of price discovery? Yeah, it's interesting, like with bonds at the moment, like people are saying they're not really an alternative anyway. So, um, yeah, if you get more intervention, well, what's... The correlations are all sort of mixed up at the moment as well. Is it defensive or well, you just don't know? Like, um, yeah, I think the correlation because of where rates are has fallen apart. So bonds have seemed to lost their place at the moment. Um, but it'll be interesting to see at, at the moment we don't have the answers. But I think as, as yield curve 
uh, and rates go up, it'll be interesting to see the flows into bonds, whether money does go back there from equities. But um, it'll be a really interesting dynamic. But you would have thought if rates start moving, economic conditions start improving. So it'll be a fine line between money going back into equities or switching to bonds. But at the moment, it just feels like equities are the um, only solution for most people at the moment. And just I think it will stay that way until we, maybe we get to around 1% on the 10-year or 1.25 if we actually get back there. It feels like a long way off. Um, but if we get around there, that'll be a real testing point, I think, on allocations. You mentioned big tech before and how highly correlated that's been with, with bond prices and inversely correlated to bond yields, if you like. You know, there's been some talk that, that for some investors, those big tech plays have almost replaced the bond market. They're super safe, um, you know, in some ways safer than governments and, and what we're seeing by different governments around the world with such low yields you can forecast any growth becomes highly attractive do you you think it's possible we could live in a world where those ultra mega cap tech stocks do replace government bonds in in part as an asset class i think it's happening and like i, I wouldn't really agree with it but um the behavior is there because yeah. you see, like with the federal um programs in the us with apple you know the, the Fed buying debt issued by Apple and the like. So people are saying, well, the Fed have got the back of these companies. They've got a, a yield higher than a bond. Mm. Um, rates are low. The Fed in, are intervening on credit spreads. So credit spreads are compressed. I mean, they shouldn't be anywhere near where they should be at the moment. So the alternative is a bond paying, you know, at the short end, you're not, you're getting 25, 30 bips maybe. And then in the, in the mid, so long end, you're getting 65, 70 bips. Um, why wouldn't you be invested in some of these equities? I get that rationale. It's not something we do, but it, the rationale is pretty sound at this point in time, especially if you've got a view that rates aren't moving for three to, three to five years. And I think that's probably the right scenario for the Fed. You probably won't see a move for you know at least two, three years. And gold's the other asset class that gets spoken about to replace some of the bond market if investors lose appetite to invest there. How do you see gold performing in, in the next three to five years, given the, the macro context we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, you, you paint every scenario for gold and it looks pretty positive. Um, 2018, we really started going heavy in gold. Um, and when you look at, when I look at gold, you've got to look at the positioning as well. So you look at the CFTC uh, positioning, which is the speculative or the... Um, you know, the futures producing on commodities. And in 2018, very much um, under underbought. It was, it was very much underbought. So now it's very much overbought. Um, but the conditions there, I'm trying to paint what could be negative for gold at the moment. You've got, you know, Fed hoping to run for high inflation. That's, that's a tick for gold. You've got low nominal rates. Um, high inflation, low nominals equals higher negative reals. Um, I'm trying to painted a negative picture for gold because uh, I hate being on the momentum trade or, you know, being on the consensus trade, but it's hard to say why we'll go, go down from here. And the fiscal position of co uh, countries is getting worse. Um, the US fiscal position, so a weaker US dollar potentially could be playing out for a longer period of time too if the rest of the world picks up. So 
it does feel like gold is very much consensus, but I'm finding it really hard to paint a negative case for it. So uh, we're still maintaining our gold position. And I think over the next few years, gold looks okay. I thought there might be some short-term weakness in gold or consolidation around if you get a pickup in yield curve, um, whether gold becomes a funding source and people move into other asset classes. Still debating that. I'm not sure whether it will happen. It sort of felt like it's trying to consolidate around here at this point in time. You've had a few liquidation events when you get a big sell-off. Um, gold often becomes a funding source um, when you get a big sell-off in a risk event, and but then bounces back. So we're consolidating around these levels, around 1900 to 1950. Um, but yeah, over the next couple of years, it just feels like gold's in a very sweet spot um, and it'll be hard to disrupt it at this point in time. And we know political uncertainty is a, a tailwind for gold as well. How the world's currently looking, certainly China um, relations with the US and, and Australia as well have, have been very much in the headlines of late. How are you feeling about uh, trade relations with China, both from an Australia and US perspective? And, and maybe what do you think uh, globalisation 2.0 looks like in that context? Yeah, so I'll touch on Australia first. I'm very nervous with the, our relations. Um, we seem to be going down a collision course and it's just been escalating. Um, recently, there's been a bit of a pairing back on the Australian side, so I think they've got the message. But I really think the for Australia, with you know such an important trading partner, I get the political stance, but there also have to be some sort of realisation around um, in the new world, China is going to be a, a louder voice. Um, we don't agree with some of the things China does like as, as a country i guess but the same could be said about the us as well like they've had um a clouded past as well and inter intervention across the globe with various policies and um, military interventions so the same could be said there's always um a collision course when you've got global powers a, a change of global power so um it's a collision course that will be stuck on for a period but australia i'm not sure whether our um, stance is the correct one in the short term. It should be more out of respect, I think, the how we deal with China. Um, so I think in the short term, some of the companies under threat in Australia, we've seen them, um, they've gone out after our agricultural um, sector, which is an easy target because you can replace that uh, basically with any other substitution across the world. So Treasury Wines was a big one that got hurt recently in that space, didn't they? Yeah, they, they got really um, hurt um, through... Uh, investigation around whether the, they were, it was sort of like an anti-dumping uh, case, which is, mm. I'm not sure if you, you could call Grange dumping. <laughs> but, uh, maybe, maybe their lower stuff um, may be fair, but uh, we'll see how it progresses. But like the, if they are going to dump Grange anyway. I prefer they dumped it in Australia, to be correct. honest. I'm happy to take a few. Yeah. <laughs> what about some of the milk players, A2 Milk, um, Bellamy, some of these companies that have been huge benefactors of, mm. of relations with China. Are you nervous about the outlook for, for these companies that are really exposed if the landscape changes? Well, I think New Zealand for A2 have been a bit, um, well, they haven't been as, as aggressive as, as Australia. So New Zealand companies are probably okay. Yeah. Uh, Bellamy's obviously got a relationship, so they'll be okay. Um, the ones I'm concerned about are our mining companies, but um, they're such a big proportion of their um, imports to China that 
it'd be very um, silly of them to go after them at this point in time. So uh, I know Fortescue are a, a, a great ambassador, I think, for Australia. Their engagement with China is great. Um, and they've got China involvement in the, in the share register. So I think they're okay. Um, but yeah, I just worry about some of the damage that can be caused um, purely from a financial impact for uh, some of the stocks we own as well. So um, it's, it's a strange policy path to go down for Australia. Um, I just don't think there's much benefit at this point. Talk to me about China's debt situation. They've got huge debt in their uh, both public level and, and the private banking system. Are you concerned about the level of debt in the Chinese economy? Yeah, I, I think the thing with China debt is it won't be a concern until it's a concern. And I think it's been uh, you know, a concern for 15 years um, as the huge amounts of infrastructure have been built and local government bonds and they tried socialising a little bit of it over the last few years, and I think that will continue. Um, so whenever big banks get in trouble, they, they bail them out effectively. They bail out bondholders. They're letting a few go bankrupt now, but they're still very much intervened. Um, I guess in a, in a closed system, you can do that. If the Chinese economy opens up more, market forces will dictate more of the um, outcomes of these companies, and obviously that will be a negative. But I think in a closed economy and with high levels of uh, personal saving, uh, the overall mix isn't that bad, but it's something we watch the um, non-performing loans and some of the issuances on bonds, but so far so good. They're really going hard this year on the local government bonds. I think last, um, it was in July in the, the total social financing stats, the local government bond issuance was the largest ever. So I think it was running at 1.4 trillion for the month. So um, they're really spending a lot of money um, on infrastructure and at the local government level to prop up their economy. But um, at the moment, not an immediate threat, but longer term, it's obviously a concern that the amount of debt they're running. Um, we just hope they don't turn into like a Japan later on where they just get um, surrounded by all this debt and just can't work their way out of it. And a lot of their debt is in US dollars. Do you subscribe to the fact that or well, A, they're, they're short US dollars more so than, than what some believe. And do you also think that was in any way related to their desire to, to take over Hong Kong and gain access to some of the US dollars in the, the banking system there? Yeah, I've read a little bit about it. And there's a few conspiracy theorists out there saying, yeah, they were short US dollars and Hong Kong was just a play on that. I think they're okay at the moment. Um, obviously, they've been trying to move away from the energy as well, paying in US dollars. Um, it's not really a viable situation for them at the moment to run the uh, yuan as a, a reserve currency as, as such or uh, get away from the US dollar. But I, I've noticed I've been a big seller of uh, bonds in the US. Mm. So um, they've moved the dial a fair bit there. So maybe there is some truth to the aspects of um, short US dollar. Um, but you would have seen when the, the crash happened in March, the US um, swap lines that were opened up, globally and that was really an, an alliance i guess to all the supporters of the us allowing them us dollars whereas the other guys were caught short um so that was a, a real defining moment uh, whoever was on that swap line list that they were a friend of america and they were allowed to use the fed to get access to us dollars and a lot of the countries were left out and china of course um is one of them and and the us have been continually trying to ratchet down um, their ability to get access to Fed uh, discount windows. And 
even with like HSBC now, you know, the move to Hong Kong, they're trying to stop that happening as well. So um, it's really a game that's just going to continue for the next, uh, probably the rest of our lives, really, the the battle between US and China. And China are now uh, pricing oil contracts in Wuhan and, and purchasing oil in Wuhan. Is that material and, and something that you feel is is significant? I don't think it's material, but it, I mean, it does have broad range, broad consequences, I guess. But I don't think in the short term it's material because there's not too many people that want Yuan. Yes. Um, so it's all very well and good to start writing those contracts, but you need uh, counterparties. And at the moment, I don't know who would be wanting to be long Yuan uh, when the currency is probably not freely floating so they can do whatever they want with the the price of the currency really so um i think the us dollar i think the death of the us dollar has been called about 50 times over the past 30 years as a reserve and it, at the moment it's still the most dominant currency won't be replaced the yuan won't replace it um because you need counterparties that believe in the in the issuance uh, of, of that currency do you think, though, if you do have central banks intervening in bond markets all around the world, I know we've sort of focused on US bond market, but we've already got yield curve control in Australia and we've got it in Japan. So it's, it's something that's not just theoretical. It, it is already happening in parts around the world. If that happens and you lose that price discovery, do you think you'll get more volatility in currency markets? Is that where the, the, the price discovery will effectively come out if it's not coming out in the bond market? Yeah, I think you're right because you see the the volatility in the bond markets are non-existent now. So we look at the move index um, and there's no volatility in bond markets. But the FX markets, it's, it feels like the spillover of vol has rolled over into the FX markets. So FX markets, I guess, when nominals aren't moving, that price discovery lever falls apart. So it's really... Um, FX is really hard to trade at the moment. It's really around, um, you know, the risk on risk off trade. So US dollars, the risk off trade, like that always gets bid in a, a risk off environment and the risk on trades like Australia currency um, is obviously bid higher on a risk on trade. So it feels like, yeah, the, the bond market vol has spilled over to the FX market um, and we're getting all the variability in FX um, at the moment. So I think you're right there. The You'd expect to see more vol in the FX market going forward. And, and we've seen it over the last three months. It's been huge moves, um, you know, intraday, um, you know, short-term trends, long-term trends. There's been huge moves. And US dollar or short US dollar long Aussie equities really feels like it's one and the same trade. Do you think it's possible there's a world where the US dollar goes up and Aussie equities drop. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Like the use of the correlation with the Aussie. Sorry, where where US dollar goes up and Aussie equities go up. Do you think yeah. that's possible? That can happen. Yeah, I was just going to say the 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 correlation on the Aussie dollar used to be related to the S and P five hundred volatility. Mm. When volatility fell, Aussie dollar would go up. So it's sort of similarly related to the the market as well. But I think. Definitely, the if the US dollar goes up, then we need to work out why it's going up. If it was going up on a on a bid for safety or a flight to safety, then the Aussie market probably be going down. It, it feels like more like the the US dollar should be falling for the Aussie market to go up, but to for, to have the US dollar going up at the same time, 
I'm not sure how that would play out at this point. Um, What's so deflationary if the US dollar strengthens, isn't it? You can't see the reflation trade happening, you know, especially with you, when you combine the other deflationary factors that are already alive in the macro environment, you know, aging demographics, tech, mm. um, you know, lack of velocity of money. Um, it sort of feels like that's one and the same trade. Yeah, it does. Like it just feels like um, from here, economic recovery will see rest of the world pick up and then the rest of the world currency should outperform the US dollar. Because obviously during the pandemic, um, the, the crash, the flight to safety was, you know, dramatic. You saw the US dollar bid. I mean, even the Aussie-US cross, I mean, the Aussie got decimated, um, but has rebounded quite strongly. So I, I think if, you, if this recovery takes hold, it's hard to see the US dollar outperforming. Um, if the US dollar is outperforming, then I'd say that's a negative for equity markets in the short term. But I mean, the, the short US dollar trade seems, seems to be so consensus. So again, that makes me worry uh, about positioning. So um, it's very much a consensus um, trade at the moment, short US dollar. And do you view it if, if the US dollar is increasing in value with so much debt around the world priced in US dollars, uh, and if, if rates aren't going up, if the US dollar is increasing in value, that level of debt held by businesses all around the world is increasing, effectively having the same sort of painful outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's massive negative for emerging markets. So a lot of the emerging markets have huge US dollar uh, debt loads. So if US dollar is going up, really bad for emerging markets. And Australia gets thrown into that basket sometimes too, because again, our currency is really linked to emerging market currencies. In that scenario, um, you can see a negative um, for Australia. And talk to me about energy markets. How are you feeling about them? They're, they're obviously going to be integral to a reflation trade if uh, if that comes to bear. How are you viewing energy markets around the world? Yeah, energy is an interesting one. Well, um, obviously, we've had the rebound from the, the spike down. It, it's really around demand coming back. So we lost around 15 million barrels of demand through the pandemic. Um, OPEC have cut around 10, 10 and million barrels. Um, they've got to meet later this month in September. I really don't know how they come to agreements in OPEC meetings with all the characters in the room, but like somehow they do that. It's like watching a soap opera. Um, I'll often start and watch all the bloggers coming out of the meetings and, you know, they, they won't reach a deal, then the Russians and Saudis were going to have a meeting, and then they come out and said, oh, we'll reach a deal, and they haven't told other people, but somehow they, they get through it. But um, They reach a deal. They just don't often stick to what they, <laughs> exactly. stick to what they said they were going to do. Post. Well, you, you get a deal, and then no one complies. So you just yeah. work out what sort of compliance you're going to get. So it's a really tough trade. Um, but the, the fundamentals are in place for a, a really bullish medium-term outlook for energy. You've got US shale, which is going to be dropping maybe 4 million barrels a day from its peak to maybe 5 million barrels a day. Uh, the OPEX or CAPEX from businesses in oil uh, are cutting, you know, 35 40%. So all the dynamics are really favourable medium term. Short term, there may be some noise around OPEC compliance and OPEC meetings if it falls apart. If OPEC plus falls apart, that, that'd be horrendous in the short term. But if they can maintain it for the next six to nine months and we get that demand coming back, I think everything's set up for a really bullish energy scenario. And I think um, being long oil into that, 
uh, will be a very good trade. Um, we just got to go through all this noise period at the moment, but um, I, I think everything looks good about it, um, medium term. So that's medium term. What about if we try and, and forecast longer term? You've got prices of commodities are uh, created by the marginal buyer, if you like. There may be a world where that marginal buyer is no longer buying oil, particularly for cars as they move to electrification. But then you've also got the idea that, say, cigarette companies became a good investment, not condoning cigarettes, but they, they finally became a good investment when um, there was a ban put on advertising because all of a sudden they just became cashless assets. They stopped spending on advertising to try and new, acquire new customers. And that could correlate to oil companies that no longer spend on exploration, just really become cash flow assets. Out of those two different arguments in the longer term, which one do you more align with? I still think there'll be demand growth in oil. Um, I know BP just called the end of demand growth this week. Um, that's generally a good sign for oil because uh, these big companies normally make horrendous calls at the inflection point. So I think that's a positive that they came out and said demand growth. But um, even if we get to your scenario of like a, a usage or demand fall over the years, that downside case goes very much to what you're talking about with the cigarette companies where they become cash cows, huge yields. No one's replacing the, the, the supply of oil and the incremental cost of a barrel just goes up and up and up. And they become a, a great business to own and just a huge dividend yielder. So um, for us, I'm not sure which path we go down. I would have thought we go down the demand growth path because, again, we've seen peak oil, I don't know how many times in my career as well. Um, and we keep having demand growth year on year, um, barring pandemics um, and GFCs. But um, the demand growth, obviously, there's a new one uh, coming with the, the electrification of uh, vehicles, which is a bit of a headwind. But again, we're talking maybe 2030 before that really becomes kicking in. And with the, the CapEx reductions over the next few years, I just think the, the medium term environment is great for all. And it's also using a lot more products than maybe what some people realise, isn't it? From fertilisers to plastics, the mm. air transport. It's it's not just, you know, internal combustion engines. It's just one part of the demand story. Yeah, correct. I think it's um, from memory, it's around 14% of global oil uh, usage is, is cars. Um, and aviation is around 10%. So um, you're right, there is a lot more use of petrochemical industry Uh than meets the eye uh, to most people. Brilliant. So we, uh, most of our guests come on, we finish with, uh, with three questions. So I wanted to, first one of them is, um, what was your first ever investment? Oh, the first ever, this is embarrassing. Um, this was uh, back in the tech boom, uh, was Davnet, a company. So oh, okay. yeah, so they had uh, some, a few satellite dishes on top of buildings. Um, as a new way to connect, um, revolutionise uh, connections between businesses. And I, I think I was buying it around 40 cents and I, I think it went up to four bucks, something, 440. And then um, being very young, I thought I was, I was a genius. How easy is this game? Um, then kept buying all the way up and then had my highest position near the top. And then I got wiped out in a, maybe a couple of weeks, I think it was. Um, but, yeah, I, I was investing back in the tech boom um, Back in ninety nine, two thousand was around there. You in uni then? Uh, this was pre uni. Pre uni, yeah. I, I reckon I've spoken about four or five people who were in uni in the late nineties, and yeah. they're 
you're about the fifth person who's mentioned Davnet. So oh, really? Yeah, must have been a red hot stock. Oh, it's a great one there. It's just a license to print money. <laughs> and what about what advice would you have to your 18 year old self about investing or, or, or otherwise? Yeah, I guess the advice is um, do your own research and like always be curious and try and find the, not the, the, the truth of information, but just surround yourself with people that have independent thought process and you can chat through ideas with. Because I think when you're young, I, I, I know about yourself, but um, I'd read a, a broker report, you know, with a buy recommendation, I'd be like, oh, wow. It's, I must buy this stock, but you really got to go to the source of the information, find your own truth, and really uh, stick to stick to a process. Whatever your process is, you can make money various different ways. Just have a process, be disciplined, and when things change, change your view. Um, don't just sit there and hope it's not an investment strategy. Brilliant advice. And what's the most common mistake you see retail investors make? Uh, it's momentum as well. So getting caught up in the hype. Um, we saw it now, uh, well, just recently with the NASDAQ-style uh, stocks. Um, and we're seeing it now with the, the buy now, pay later stocks, um, all, you know, going up 500 800%. I just think, you know, you get caught up in the momentum and you, you start, the emotions kick in. And one thing you don't, well, you don't want in investing is emotion. You try and be as as little as emotion as possible just try and be as rational as possible and when you're finding yourself getting caught up in the emotion that's generally a good time to exit and the same when when the market fell in a hole in march because i've been around for a little bit you just know that's a time to buy when everyone's like oh the world's going to end the all these companies are like trading below net tangible asset backing that's the moment you buy you don't sell Brilliant advice, Matt. I've loved it. I've loved chewing your ear off about uh, about macro. I could do it for a lot longer, but you've got a real job to go to. So, mate, thanks very much for coming on and really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. For more info on today's partner, AIA Health Insurance, visit aiahealth.com.au or call 133-AIA-TODAY. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Dutt Invest.